Good morning. Glad to be here today. We're continuing our study on heaven. We've been looking at what does the Bible have to say about eternity. We've gone through some lessons where we looked at the heavenly city that we'll live in. We looked at what will our uh, bodies be like? What will we be like? What changes will there be? We looked at what will we be doing? Is it going to be boring? You know, are we sitting in a lawn chair uh, by the pool forever? You know, we've been looking at these things. Today, we are going to be talking about um, a specific day where everything we've done in this life is going to be evaluated. Now, I was thinking about how can I launch out today and give uh, an example of why what we're doing can be important. And I was remembering as I grew up in the 80s, uh, listening to music in my teen years, I remember there was this group called Millie Vanilli. I don't know if you remember that group. Um, they had these long dreadlocks and they had a couple big hit songs and, and they became famous very quickly. I think they won like, you know, uh, New Artist Award. They had this dance where they would go like this, you know, and and um, and then this happened. They were doing a performance in front of a big crowd, and they were up there going to doing their thing, and then all of a sudden, the words that they were singing, they began to loop and say the same thing over and over and over again, and suddenly Millie and Vanilli ran off the stage, and when they ran off the stage, their voices were still singing, and what came out was they were fakes, they were frauds. They actually were never singing. Is this news to some of you? You've never heard about this? You know, you've, <laughs> Barb, Barb hasn't heard about it. But it's, it's, this really happened. So just imagine you get an award, you're becoming famous, but the very thing that you're famous for, it's just a fake. And they had somebody else record the music and then they put it out there. They were making money. The, the, the award they got, they shouldn't have got. And, uh, when they did their performances, they were lip syncing. They were just playing the music out there, you know? If that's the case, I could be famous, you know? But here's the point I wanted to make is there came a day where it was now known that the work that they were doing wasn't even real. It didn't have true meaning. And this is where I want to take us. Because what are you doing with your life? All the work that you're doing with your life, what, what are the achievements you have? And so I titled this message, Crowning Achievement, Our Crowning Achievement. And I brought us just this little model right here. You know, it's a crown. You could put it on. I, I actually walked in the foyer with it and, and Steve uh, looked at me and he said, are you having uh, um, delusions of adequacy? Or was it inadequacy? I can't remember. Adequacy. You know, I, don't, I think he was... Uh, uh, that was a slight on me, but uh, anyways, uh, I, I'm going to bring that out in a second, but I put up here um, different things that we might feel are great achievements if we could get them. Maybe you work throughout your life and towards the end, you've got a large bank account and that is like a great achievement. I had a friend who got a Maserati. He laid in his life and he said, Pastor Kevin, let me take you for a ride. And we went driving through California mountains in a Maserati. I, maybe it's, I put the White House up there because maybe there's, there's, a, there's a great achievement that, that is either political or some type of title. Or, or, or maybe it's if I can just uh, um, get certain degrees in my life and then I have a title that goes with that. I put a trophy up there. You know, that's a World Cup trophy, by the way, you know, since I'm a soccer guy, if you didn't notice what kind of trophy that is. Um, great achievements in life. However, the Bible talks about a day where the things that really matter are going to be known. And many of the achievements that we accomplish in our life are going to fade away. And they will not go into eternity. And part of the lesson, if we're looking at heaven is there's this preparation where how are you spending your life? In fact, the, this day is, is pictured. I got a slide to kind of show what, it, you know, it's an artist's renditioning, renditioning, but you've got like all the saints in the background and there's Christ. And in that moment, see, he's taking a crown and he's putting it on the head of one of the saints because the awards that you get in heaven are called crowns. Now, this is a cheap crown, 
But these are going to be eternal, things that last forever, a crown that represents what you did in this life. No bank account, no Maseratis, no titles like that. It's a, it's a crown. In fact, Jesus does this uh, as an example as he's teaching to, to show you that you need to be focused on why you do the things you do because not everything goes into eternity. He's teaching in, in uh, well, actually, I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians 3 first where it says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will, be, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Now notice the word days capitalized there because it's like an event. It's, a, it's a, on the calendar in the future there is a day where we're all going to stand before Christ just like that picture kind of was trying to show you. And he's, it's going to evaluate what we did with our life. And in this verse it's saying it's going to be revealed by fire which I'm going to talk about as we go through the message today. Because it's possible that we're doing things for the wrong reason. We're doing things for selfish reasons, selfish ambition. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And look what he's saying there. He's saying some people are motivated to do what they're doing for the wrong reasons. He's saying there are people who stand up and they're, they're praying publicly where everybody can see. Why? Because they want the recognition that they look righteous and holy. And we live in an age where we see this, where people want to wave the morality flag. Do you see what I did? Do you see the, the act I did? Do you see what I gave? Do you see the sacrifice I made? Why did they do it? Why do they have to do it publicly and wave the flag? Because they want the recognition. They want that moral credit attached to them. And he's saying, if that's why you do it, then that's the only reward you get. You get the applause of men. You get the recognition. But he's saying, go do it in secret, where it's only between you and God. Then your reward, you see, is not man-centered, is it? There's a way in which what we're really striving for is self-glory. And self-glory has the tendency to unseat God's glory and lift ourselves up and say, we are great. In fact, that's what caused it all in the very beginning. If you go all the way back to the beginning, what started all the problems in the world that God made? It was one of the angels he made, Lucifer, who said, I am magnificent. I am, I am wonderful. I am glorious. I am going to unseat God and take his place on his throne. And that's what started it all. We have a sickness, a desire for self-glory, a thirst for it in such a way that we will unseat God. And so it affects our motives. It affects why we do the things that we do. And Jesus is using this example of, of just prayer. In fact, see that's verses 5 to 6. If you were to read verses 1 to 4, he uses the example of helping poor people, helping p the, the uh, poverty and, and, and the hunger. If I go and, I, and I'm going to make food and then I take it and I feed hungry people who are homeless, there's a way in which you can do that that is all about you. Well, oh, you know, we're helping people. I've checked that box off. It makes me feel good about myself. I did something good for society. There's a way in which the motivation behind that is all about you. And, and in that case, again, Jesus says the only reward you get is the applause of men. In, in what he says in that case, here he says, do, do your prayers in, in private, in secret. On the other, he says, don't let your left hand do what the right hand is, do, is doing when you're paying for something like that. Give the money to help in a way that you get no public recognition. Then you get your reward in heaven. 
And so what I'm going to strive at today is to challenge the motives of why you do the things that you do. And we're looking at this event, that, that day where everything is tested. So I just got three thoughts for us today. And the first is, what is this event? And I thought, I'm going to make it easy. I'm just going to give you the name of it right away. And we'll look at some verses. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And remember, it's a day, just like we might, we might look at a year and say there's a holiday and it's on this day. It happens on you know, the third Thursday of this month or the 25th of December, or it's a day. And in the future, if we're going to preach on heaven, there's a day in the future. He even calls it the day. It's the Bema Seat of Christ. Now, Seat of Christ is a throne. Bema, you go back into the, to the uh, Old Testament Jews and their culture, it meant like the place where they would stand uh, and teach or judge the people. It's the Bema Seat of Christ. Another term that means the same thing is the judgment seat of Christ. And that is, we can, we, if you don't know what Bema is, you can just think of that one. It's a judgment. It's, it's Christ who's going to judge. The seat is his throne. That's what the day is. Okay. Now, what do we learn about this day? Let me give you a little bit more. We're going to look at just a couple verses on this. And the first one comes from 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. I've only got the last part there, but listen to me as I read through this section. And he describes this. He says, um, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And I, ha and I put the last part there. You can see it because it's the part about um, um, the foundation survive, uh, surviving what you've put on it. So as you read through that section, there's three observations I see in it. And the first is notice that something is being built on a foundation already laid. And what, that, what Paul is teaching there is the foundation's already there. We're going to put something on top of a foundation. The foundation was Jesus Christ. What, what is that foundation? It's the church. What is the church? It's bought and paid for by his death on the cross. It's sacrificial. It's love. For God so loved the world, I'm going to give up myself to bring you into my family. That's the foundation. And he says, everything you do is built on top of that. Now, if you're, if you're not, if what you're building doesn't fit without foundation, it's going to be known is what he's saying. Something's being built on a foundation already laid. Everything I do as a pastor, the teaching and the preaching that I do, the, the counseling that I do, it's on top of a foundation that Jesus Christ laid. Now, not only that, the, thick, ne the, the next thing that I notice is that be careful how you build. It's got to fit. You can't put certain kinds of buildings on certain kinds of foundations. They have to fit. The foundation of Christ laid. We're building on top of it. And Paul is warning you, be careful what you build on top of it. Why? Why would he say that? Well, look at the third point. What you are building will be tested. And he gives the uh, description. How? How? How does he describe it? By fire. Now this is a fire that's testing the purity of something. This is not a hell fire that is like torment, judgment. It's not that. It's, a, it's like if you had a, a chunk of metal that had some gold in it, but other kinds of metals, and you put it in a pot, and you, you, you turn the fire up, it would melt all of it. But what that does, that fire, that intense heat, it separates 
the most pure metal, the gold, would go like this. It would come up to the top, and then the other metals, it would separate them. This is a fire that is testing the purity of what you built on top of Christ's foundation. It's testing the purity of your motives. Did you do that because you wanted to flag, wave your morality in front of people? Or did you do it, like he says, for the right kinds of reasons? Are you looking for recognition? Or is your motivation to bring glory to God first and foremost. Now, what's interesting is he says, let me just reread the very last part. He says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. This is what we're talking about. This is the, this is the reward, okay? But then he goes on to say, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. In other words, there are going to be some people on that day who say, here's what I did with my life, and I'm going to put it on that foundation. It's going to be tested by fire. It's like, here's the house that I built, just as an illustration, right? And all of a sudden, the fire comes, and you're like, hey, wait a minute. This thing's really catching on fire. Now the wall's over there, and, and my ceiling is coming in, and I can't breathe their smoke. And if I stay in this, it's going to be burned up, and I just jump out the window to save myself. And then everybody there is like, the thing that he built was motivated all wrong, and we know because you got black on your face and you smell like smoke. In fact, there's a little drizzle of smoke coming off your hair. We know because we can see it. However, you're not destroyed. That's what he's saying. It's not a fire of, of uh, eternal damnation. It's a fire of testing. And it's revealing really what you did with your life. Now, the other thing, so we notice it's a test of our work. And then I go on to, to point out the next thing is that it's an evaluation also of ourselves. Because in Romans 14, 12, um, and I know you guys are going to be flipping around a little bit today, but Romans 14, actually 10 through 12, it says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or... You, why do you despise your brother? For now he's looking at here. Why we're doing what we're doing or how we compare ourselves to others. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And I put the last part there. It's a test that day. And it's also, you're going to give an account and right here, what he's pointing out is the way in which we interact with one another. You just look across the room, and there are ways in which we look at each other and we pass judgment. We pass judgment on each other. Well, I'm better off in life than that person. I drive a better car than them. I'm better looking. I've got a better education. I'm smarter. There's so many ways in which we compare each other, and we interact in ways that are built around inferiority and superiority. And within God's family, that should never be. Everyone's on equal footing. We are all sinners saved by God's grace. No one deserves to go to heaven because we've all earned the judgment of God. But because he sent his son and his son took that judgment, now we, we escape the judgment. But not only that, he brings us into his family. This is one of the most marvelous things I talk about with salvation. It's not like I went to prison and I'm rotting in prison and suddenly they come and say, somebody else paid your way out. And you're like, yeah, I get to come out of prison. You come out of prison. But not only that, someone standing there says, the guy who, who paid your way out, he's got a limo waiting for you. And he drives you over to to a mansion and a vast estate. And he says, I've got a room for you in my mansion and I'm adopting you into my family. That's the only way you could think about it. You go from riding in prison, deserving judgment, to being the son or daughter of royalty and part of that family and part of the inheritance of being in that family. That's what it is. But see, here Paul says, do you judge people? Do you speak in ways that are judging? And the thing he wants to, the point he wants to make, there's only one judge. 
And that judge is Christ. And if he's the judge, don't take his job. Who are you to judge? That's what he's saying. So he says, each of us will give an account. Do you pass judgment on your brother? Do you despise them? Don't, is what he's saying. Each one of us will give an account for how we did the things we did. Okay, so we see it's a test of work. It's an evaluation of ourselves. And then we also see that um, it's a judgment to receive something. It's a judgment to receive something. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in this verse, what we see about that day, there's the word judgment seat of Christ. But you see that why are we judged? Because you're going to receive something. We've already seen the word reward in a different verse, but here he's specifically saying you're going to receive something. What are we going to receive? Whatever is due for what you've done. There's an evaluation based upon that. It's going to translate into something that we receive. Now, you should be able to relate to this because we live in, you know, a civilization, a world, a, a, an economy where it's like you work for something. Maybe it's minimum wage. Maybe it's a salary. But when you come to the end of that period of working, whether it's two weeks or, you know, whatever, you're owed something. You say, hey, where is what I earned this? Where's it's due to me? That's what the word means. You take everything God gives you, you utilize it as a steward, and it's going to be tested, and then based upon how you stewarded it, there's a reward. That's what he's saying in this, in this passage. And so I put here the observation is, we will receive our due. And then I took all of the observations from these verses, I put them on one slide. What is this event? It's, some, it's, it's teaching us Something is being built on a foundation already laid. Be careful how you build. What you are building will be tested. And our attitudes matter. It's how we build it as well, right? Not just what we build. We will give an account for how we built together, not judging, and then we will receive our due. Now that gives us some, something to, to move forward to the rest of the sermon with. What is this day, this event? But then I wanted to make one point. This is shorter because I want to make sure there's clarity here. You understand this. Who is at the event? Who is at this event? And the answer is only believers in Christ. Only people who have put their faith in Christ. And you need to make that distinction because there's a whole nother time where people are standing before a throne and books are open. And the result of that is salvation. The result of that is you enter into heaven or not. This is something else. And there will come a sermon in the series where I'll talk a little bit more about chronology, about how all these things go in what order. But what I can tell you right now is this event, the, the Bema Seat of Christ, the Judgment Seat of Christ, it happens after. Do you remember when we talked in the sermon about how our bodies will be raised up, how they'll change? I use the word transform, which is what Paul was talking about. We go into the earth, but there'll come a day where God calls us out, where we're made alive again. And here's the thing. Everybody here, if you're a believer in Christ, you're part of the family of God. But another word he uses is the bride, the bride of Christ. Christ is like the groom, and he uses that as this analogy. In the same way that a bride kind of comes down that aisle, and there's the groom waiting, and then they come together, and then they're united, and they're waiting for that day to happen, right? There will come a day where the church, everyone in the family of God, will. we won't come down an aisle. We're going to go up to meet him, and they'll come together. And in the analogy, it's like Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. They come together like that, and they're, and they're unified like that. Now, um, only the bride comes and unites and meets the groom. So who is at the event? The bride, the church, the body of Christ, believers. How do you become that? You put your faith in who Jesus Christ was. I believe 
that Jesus was a real man that lived some 2,000 years ago. He claimed to be the Son of God. The proof of that were the things that he did, the fact that he met all of the qualifications that were listed in the Old Testament leading up to him. But the greatest proof was that he died on that cross, went into the tomb, but became alive again. He came out of that tomb alive. And that's why last week we said he's the first fruits of the resurrection. In the same way he rose, we too will live again. People who have put their faith in Christ, I like the analogy Jesus used. Jesus said, he goes back to the story of Noah. He says, if they were in the ark, then they were saved from the judgment waters that came. In the future, if you're in Christ, you will be saved from the judgment, not waters, but fire. And that's why I like to use this verse a lot, Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I put my faith in Christ. That means I believe that he was the son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins in my place. He went into the grave. He rose again. I put my faith in that. And Paul says, if your faith is in that, there is no condemnation for you. Why? Because every wrong thing I ever did, Christ took the condemnation for me on the cross. That's why there's no condemnation for me. So when I talk about this judgment seat, don't get confused. It's not a judgment of condemnation. It's a test of stewardship in my life. I like this verse, Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just want to give you another one, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, which talks about being saved by grace through faith, but not only that, but also for something. Let me just read you the passage. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one can boast or brag. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's three things there. You're saved by grace. That means we don't deserve it. It's a gift from God. But there's a faith part. We put our faith in that work of Christ on the cross. But then he also says, why are we saved? We are saved for good works. By the way, did you notice it says those good works were prepared beforehand? Meaning, there's somebody I haven't met yet that later in my life I'm going to meet them that I can now minister to them in such a way that fulfills God's design. That's the good work prepared beforehand for me. Pastor, how do I know the good works? You go into the Bible and you learn what they are. There's all these things called the one another's, to love one another, to pray for one another, shoulder one another's burdens. It's the way we interact with one another, and we do these good works to each other, the way that we live as a family, as a community. God prepared those beforehand already. So, if you discover what those are, and then you go live them like that, this is our part in being good family members to one another in doing the good works, which, by the way, is good stewardship, which leads to the rewards. So Bruce Wilkinson, if you know him, he's an author, he framed it this way. He said, our eternal destination is the consequence of what we believe on earth. Our eternal compensation, though, is the consequence of how we behave on earth. In other words, eternal destiny, it comes about by what we believe right now as we're living on this earth. But our rewards, he uses the word compensation, is the consequence of how we behave. How do you live once you believe? How do you behave once you believe? This is where the rewards come in. Now, at this point, what you've seen is what is this day? We're giving you that idea. Who is there? Only believers in Christ. And now at this point, you're going to say, okay, Pastor Kevin, well, what are these rewards? How, how do we get one of these? How do, how do one of these go here when we get to heaven? 
Well, one of the things is we're going to look at some that are talked about in the Bible. What are these? How do you get one? And then see if you can employ yourself in a way to get one. So let's look at them. How do we get crowned at this event? Well, the first one I want to show you, it's called the victor's crown. It's in 1 Corinthians 9. Now, I just put part of the verse up there, but I want you to listen to me read through the section on it. It says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. Now he's using the word wreath, but this is another word for crown because the analogy is back in his day, Paul's day, they, they had the games, uh, Greeks that would come together and compete. And if you were a winner, they gave you this wreath that would go around like this but it's, it's made out of essentially vegetation, which means he's saying that's, he uses the word perishable. That, that thing they put, you won the race, it's going to die. It's going to wither. It's going to go away. And his analogy, of the, it's a sports analogy to say, we run a different kind of race. And our race, the, the crown we get, this is just a toy, but in heaven, the crown we get is imperishable. It has eternity to it. It's not going to wither and die. But notice what he says. He's, he's trying to teach you something. And what he's teaching you is an athlete must discipline themselves to be a winner. They have to train. They have to eat a certain way. And they go through long periods where, where they have to be disciplined. And when you look at the winners, even in life, if we were to look at professional sports or the Olympics, the people who win Super Bowls, Olympics uh, events, World Series, World Cups. The winners are people who have long roads traveled of a lot of hard work and discipline. In the first service, I used one of my sons as an example, Ethan. I love Ethan. I like to talk about him. You know, he competed in the CrossFit Games, came fifth in the world he finished. But right now he's training to represent Guam in an Olympics and there's two events he's working on. And let me tell you what happens. Now, I'm generally the first person awake in my house. And I wake up, I make coffee, and I'm reading on my couch. The second person up is Ethan. And he gets up Monday through Friday. It's still dark outside. He gets ready, and he leaves, and he goes to the gym, and he's there for two hours lifting and training. He has coaches every day. Now, at my age, 50, I wake up and my wife will be like, are you coming to the gym today? Oh, well, uh, maybe. Yes, I made it today. I'm not an Olympic athlete. I'm not like him. I don't have to do those things because I'm not going to go compete. I don't have to worry about winning that. He, he wants to win. And winners win by a long road traveled of discipline. Not only this kind of stuff, but eating. You can't become a winner if your diet is donuts and Coke. And so Ethan has a whole diet he eats. They have this thing called gains. How do you get gains? You got to eat protein and a certain number of calories. And, you know, so now it's like at our house, this all tr trickles down. You know, Ethan's trying to be an influence on me. Dad, you got to get in the gym. Well, not only that, but dad, why are you eating that? You know, it's like, leave me alone. I'm 50. You know, I'm not going to be in the Olympics. You know, it's like it's so much guilt. Just one Pringle. Come on. You know, but I'm trying to give you this illustration because an athlete requires discipline, so does this crown, spiritual discipline. An athlete makes everything subservient to his goal of winning. A Christian makes things in life subservient to Christ's goals for your life. Walk a certain way, think a certain way, that means I have to have the discipline. I got to get up. I got to read God's word. I got to put it in my heart. So it anchors me to eternal things. Without any of this, I become anchored to the world. I start to care about the things of the world. I start to love the things of the world. It's very quickly, can I take God and put him over here? Sometimes we struggle with temptations, certain things in our life. Well, to overcome temptations, we've got to be like an athlete, disciplined in how we can overcome those things. That's the analogy Paul's making. And he says, 
To be a winner, you must discipline yourself. That's why they call this the victor's crown. There are some people who, when they get to heaven, the crown they're going to get is you disciplined yourself. You separated yourself from those things of the world and walked in a way that was righteous. That's one of the crowns. And I think one of the most fearful things about this, because look what he says, I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Just like an athlete can become disqualified. We've, we, we, we live in an age where this, this is common. You know, I can remember it was like Lance Armstrong, the guy who won all those races, was using steroids? What? What? Those baseball players hitting home runs use steroids? There's a way in which you can become disqualified. Um, and Paul's saying, if you don't discipline yourself, it's possible that as you're trying to work out your faith, you have absorbed so much of the world, he's saying that becomes a problem. Now, I'm a guy who believes in eternal security, but I also believe that there are people who are trying to work out their faith that have never really put their faith in Christ. They like the idea of a Savior. That's like insurance because they don't, you know, they, they want to make it to heaven. But we work our faith out, Paul says. Throughout our life, we wrestle with the things of this world. The victor's crown is all about being disciplined in that. I want to show you the next one, the crown of rejoicing. This comes out of 1 Thessalonians 2.19. It says, for what is our hope or joy or crown? Saying, what is it that we really hope in or have joy in? Or the crown. And he says, boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. For you are our glory and joy. Another translation puts it this way. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? And what this crown is, this is a crown for somebody who is responsible for other people helping them make, make it to heaven. You have invested in another person in a way that has helped them. It would be like somebody coming alongside Ethan and trying to help him make it to the Olympics, right? And this is what he's saying. He's saying, what is my joy? What is my crown? My crown is you, when Jesus returns and you're there, you are at the Bema Seat of Christ. You are at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're there. Why? I invest, I, I, I helped along that way. There is, there is a person who will get a crown in heaven who just invests in other people in a way that helps them in that walk. You can do that. Right now, you are a person who could give time and energy to helping somebody like that. Now, that is the crown of rejoicing. The third crown I want to show you is called the crown of righteousness. It's in 2 Timothy 4.8. And this one, I just put part of the verse up there. I want to read a little bit more of it. It says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. I like the language there because it's really showing you on that day we're awarded something. We're awarded. He's saying, I'm going to be awarded this crown. Why? And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, in one sense, this is an easy one. This is an easy crown. I, but in another sense, it's very difficult. Because what he's saying is this crown is given to people who lived where the greatest thing they looked forward to on their calendar was the return of Jesus Christ. Now just think about that. All of us have something on the calendar we're really looking forward to. I mean, this last year, we were a whole office was orienting around Melly's wedding. It's coming up. It was on the calendar. We knew, and there's all this preparation for the wedding. Maybe for you, it's a vacation. I can't wait for the vacation to come. There's something on the calendar we all look forward to. He's saying, this crown is given to those who love His appearing. Now, you can't put it on the calendar per se, like literally, because we don't know the exact day. He doesn't tell us. So it's like, I just, I live in a way that I'm looking forward to Jesus is coming back one day. And the fact that He's coming back, it comes backward into my life, and it affects how I live. 
I can have joy because the greatest thing that's ever going to happen is still there. It can't be taken away from me. I'm going to participate in that. I can't wait for that. I can have hope. I can have joy. I look at the world. I get stressed out. You know, I look at politics. I look at how things are going and it would stress me out. But for me, I go, but this can never be taken. It can't be robbed. It can't be stolen. It can't be defeated. It's going to happen. And I can actually live with joy in hard times. It can. Because the thing that matters the most is for sure secure. You can live like that. This is a crown you could receive. If you lived in a way that you just look forward to the return of Christ, and you know that you live that way when you begin to see it affecting day-to-day joy, hope, in how we walk. Now, just to move on, I want to show you another crown. This is called the crown of life. A couple places this is mentioned, James 1.12, Revelation 2.10, <clears throat> And in this one, this is a crown that you get really for endurance, for being able to um, walk and live and, and stand in hard times, hard circumstances. I want to read to you the, the, the one that comes out of James. James 1, it says, actually I'm reading in verse 12 here. It says, blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is an endurance. This is like, this is a crown given to someone who stayed loving God, even though there was a lot of hardness, difficulty. Sometimes this is called the martyr's crown. It's given to people who actually lost their life for, the, for their faith in Christ. A really great example is uh, Jim Elliott. How many here know Jim Elliott? Very famous missionary, went to a tribe where no one had gone and ever witnessed to them, and they were known for killing people. They threw spears. There's a movie that came out called End of the Spear. If you've seen that movie, it's, this is about Jim Elliott. And they went down there and they said, we can't defend ourselves. If we kill one of them, it, it, will, it might mean we, we can't share Christ with them. So they didn't go with any weapons. And when they went, the, the interaction they had, they lost their lives. Now later, other family members made it there and they actually led the tribe to Christ. Now, I bring him up because Jim Elliott, you know, his famous saying is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And by that, you just think about his life as an example. He couldn't keep his life. No, even if he didn't go to the tribe, eventually he's going to die. We're all going to die. We can't keep our life forever. And for him, he says, I will, I will leverage that for something that I can gain that I will never lose. Eternity with Christ. You are not a fool to give up things in this life that you can never actually ever keep to gain something that can never be lost. Now, this is the uh, crown of life. I don't think it's limited to just martyrs. It could be Christians who have to, to endure temptation or persecution, perhaps with not, without losing their life. But it has to do with enduring. It has to do this this word. I talk about it often, hupamino. It means to remain underneath whatever the trial, whatever the pressure is. That's what endurance is. If you remove yourself from the t hard circumstance, you don't have endurance. You, you, you give up. And so this is a crown of endurance, of, of remaining underneath whatever God may allow in your life that could be hard. And sometimes, as in Jim Elliott's case, he gave up his life. Now, the last crown I want to show you is the crown of glory. Uh, I'm going to go to 1 Peter 5, 4. And in this one, what we see is this is a shepherding crown. This has to do, sometimes people think this is only for pastors, but I don't hold that view. I think it can be um, also for other people who, I'm a pastor, I should know where First Peter is. There we go. All right, 
let me read you the verse. It says, and when the chief shepherd, now that's Christ, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There it is, the unfading crown of glory. This is a crown given to people who are shepherds, people who teach, who instruct, and a lot of it is taking this and applying it to their life. That's, that's the, the easiest way to look at it. You need to know this, and you need to shepherd people. Now, I do that. So I look at that and I go, this could be like a pastor's type of crown, but it can be people who serve even at other levels in a church that are doing this very thing. In our church, one of the things I talk about is as a pastor, I cannot shepherd intimately and know everyone's lives. There's too many people. There's too many people. So we try to train other leaders so that they can also be shepherds. They not, may not have a title of pastor, but they're, they're still shepherding. They're investing in people's lives. They're, they're, they're getting to know God's Word, and they're applying it to their life, and they're helping them. And again, this is what I want to say. You can do that. I look out here, and there's a lot of you who could, I'll be a shepherd. I will, I will open up my home. I'll let people come in. I'm going to sit at a table. Maybe I just make a a meal, and we're sitting there, we're talking, I get to know them, I get to know their life, and then you hear things about their life, and how God's Word could speak into their life, and that's what you do. This is a shepherding crown. Now, just think about those crowns. Now, I'm going to say, and it's held, this is a view held by other pastors and teachers, that these aren't the only crowns. There's other crowns that the Bible doesn't tell us, but He's giving us these. These we know for sure. And I think it's great because it should be motivating. We say, well, pastor, I don't want to put my, what I've done with my life on that foundation of Christ and pff, it's all gone, so what do I do? Well, I just gave you a bunch. There's a bunch right here, these crowns. You can do. You can invest in other people. You can work in your life to be more disciplined spiritually. You can um, shepherd in ways so that you work at building up for that day. Now, I wanted to finish by going kind of back to that Matthew 6. Do you remember the beginning where Jesus was saying, pray in this way, don't pray that way? And I didn't read the verses. I just told you he also was talking about helping the poor, poverty-stricken, feeding. There's ways to do these things that are right, and there's ways to do these things that are wrong. And that's what I want to go back to. I came across this from John Piper. He calls it how to kill our love for human praise because we're, we're wired to, to hunger for that recognition. We want people to tell us, you're good. That was great. Well done. And again, this goes back to the temptation is to hunger for it so much that it unseats God. Like that very first time where Lucifer said, I am beautiful and glorious, and I'm going to, I should be higher than God. And it put him like this against God. And we can just take God and put him over here, and suddenly everything is about us. Well, we are not comparable to God in that way. That would be a false glory. So we have to work at trying to serve in ways that are motivated for God's glory and not just our own name. And so three thoughts, really quick. Number one, hate hypocrisy. I mean, there's a level where we all hate hypocrisy. We don't like the pastor who gets up and says, live this way, and then you find out later he did the opposite. No one likes that. We don't like the politician who says, vote for me and I will do this, and then they get into office and then they don't do it. You're like, that's hypocrisy. We don't like hypocrisy. Well, you shouldn't. You should hate hypocrisy. It's the opposite of truth. And you should hate it in here. And you have to start with that. Jesus said, hypocrites, don't be a hypocrite. If you pray in ways to just get a recognition, hypocrisy. If you go and you help the poor or the needy just to wave the moral flag to say, I feel better about myself because I'm doing something, hypocrisy. You must hate hypocrisy. That's the first thing. Second thing, I would say, and I'm actually borrowing these, like I said, from John Piper, don't settle for little rewards. What do you mean by that? 
that's the little reward. If that's why you do it, to get some type of recognition, your reward is actually really small because it only lasts right now. It goes away. And you know what happens? The person who, I really like that, then somehow they're motivated to get more of these and more of these and more of these. And somehow they begin to orient the world just to get more praise and more applause and more name recognition. You can't ever totally fill that within you. No matter how much of it you get, you will crave more because you're not designed for self-glory like that. The self-glory you desire is, is oriented away from God. God is, is how we should be oriented. So Jesus says it's a pitiful reward. Do you, do you realize how pitiful the reward is? Don't seek that. Hate hypocrisy. Recognize pitiful rewards and don't, don't seek pitiful rewards. That's why he says if you're going to give with the left hand, don't tell the right hand. Don't do it in a way that brings a lot of recognition. Challenge yourself with that. Do something that is helpful without trying to seek recognition for it. And then lastly, seek an infinite reward. Do you know how much greater than this is to have the king of the universe say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and to put that on your head in front of all of the saints in heaven? That is a great reward. That, that can be robbed by seeking this. That's Jesus' point. Hate hypocrisy. Recognize pitiful rewards. Don't seek them. And seek a greater reward in heaven. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've put throughout the New Testament these verses so we can see what is really meaningful and valuable in life. That we would want to build into our lives things that have eternal value. I pray that the sermon today would just be thought-provoking, that it would help us think about what is it that I'm doing that has eternal value. And if, if we're going to stand before Christ, like your word says, and He's going to test what we did, what will survive the test? Will all the things I've done be burned up? The illustration He uses... Lord, I pray that we would become haters of hypocrisy, not judging others, being motivated for our own glory, tearing others down, trying to feel superior. I pray that we would be a community that's humble, that loves you, that seeks your name recognition above ours, and that we build into our lives living as a community those one another's, the good works prepared beforehand, that the outside world would see a, a community, a family that does love one another, that does help one another, that lifts one another up, shoulders each other's burdens. That's what's attractive. Not self-seeking glory. And I pray that we would be motivated to build eternal um, eternal work into our lives so that one day we can stand there and you would, you would evaluate and you would say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. Let's finish our service as we just worship together. Would you stand?